Well, these weeks prior to Christmas, we have been spending some time in Matthew chapter 1 and Matthew chapter 2, allowing the Apostle Matthew, through his gospel account, to help bring perspective to us regarding the true significance of what it is we celebrate when we come to Christmas. And Matthew, as he opens this account, begins by laying a foundation that carries all the way through the gospel. And that is the foundation showing that Jesus is the Messiah. That he is the one promised in Second Samuel 7, a descendant of David who would sit on David's throne forever and ever over an eternal kingdom marked by righteousness. In Matthew chapter 1, verses 1 through 17, Matthew begins with the genealogy of Jesus, showing a listing of those who came before him and his ancestors. And in that listing, Matthew shows that Jesus is both a son of David and a son of Abraham. Being a son of David, he is the one promised in 2 Samuel 7. He is our future. He is the one who will reign on David's throne forever and ever. Being a son of Abraham shows that he is the one to which God referred in Genesis 12 verses 1 through 3. When in verse 3 he said, and in you all the families of the earth will be blessed. And because of that promise that God's plan of salvation would go beyond just Israel, but to all the nations of the earth. We find our entrance into the kingdom, our salvation, not only the salvation of just the people of Israel. And so Matthew shows us that Jesus is this promised one, this savior of the world. In verses 18 through 25, Matthew shows us how that can be through the account of the virgin birth. That Jesus is the God-man. The virgin birth shows how God could become man. The virgin birth shows how God would be able to die because he took on humanity. The virgin birth shows us how God could pay for all of our sin. And then last week in chapter 2, verses 1 through 12, we saw two groups of people that Matthew records for us here. One group knew a lot about the Messiah, but sought him little. Another group knew very little about the Messiah, but sought him much. The Magi. That came from the east. Well this morning as we continue. Into the conclusion. Of Matthew's account. Of Jesus entrance into the world. We're going to come. To a section. Chapter 2 verses 13. Through 23. 
where we see two major truths. One major truth is the fact that the Bible is a unity. That even though it's written over a period of around 1600 years, even though roughly 40 human authors authored these writings, there is a unity in the scriptures that's only there because God, by his Holy Spirit, undergirded those human authors so that what they wrote was actually God's word to us. We also see in these verses that there's a unity in God's plan. That nothing can thwart his plan of salvation. I'm going to read these verses out loud starting in Matthew 2 verse 13. And you can follow along in your copy of the Bible. Now when they had gone, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Get up, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you, for Herod is going to search for the child to destroy him. So Joseph got up and took the child and his mother while it was still night and left for Egypt. He remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what had been spoken by the Lord through the prophet Out of Egypt I called my son. Then when Herod saw that he had been tricked by the Magi, he became very enraged and sent and slew all the male children who were in Bethlehem and all his vicinity from two years old and under according to the time which he had determined from the Magi. Then what had been spoken through the prophet, through Jeremiah the prophet was fulfilled. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping in great mourning, Rachel weeping for her children, and she refused to be comforted because they were no more. But when Herod died, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt and said, Get up, take the child and his mother, and go into the land of Israel, for those who sought the child's life are dead. So Joseph got up and took the child and his mother and came into the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus was reigning over Judea in the place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. Then after being warned by God in a dream, he left for the regions of Galilee and came and lived in a city called Nazareth. This was to fulfill what was spoken through the prophets. He shall be called a Nazarene. As we look at these verses this morning from verse 13 down through verse 23, we're going to look at these two main truths that form a pattern or that hold this section together. One of the truths is that God is in absolute control over his plan to save his people from their sin. The second truth is that Jesus' escape to Egypt that we see recorded for us here shows the unity of the Bible and God's overall plan of salvation. In my second year of college, I took a class. I went to a Christian college. I took a class in the Gospel of Matthew. And I'll remember sitting in that class, in that, uh, and I have a slide for this, if we can bring that up. As I was sitting in that class through Matthew, that 
something struck me for the first time. That I became very much more aware that this faith that I had in Jesus was not just a blind leap of faith. That there's substance to this faith. That there is, there is a foundation to our faith that is defendable. That there is substance to believe Penner in the person of Jesus Christ. And my professor, A. Penner, uh, brought this out in a little chart. And I remember that chart to this day. The other thing I remember is that's one of the first classes I had where the girl that became my wife was in there too. She actually got in trouble in that class. I'll have to tell you about that sometime if you ask me. But A. Penner put this chart up on the table and the concept was that Matthew shows Jesus' birth as fulfilling Old Testament prophecy. And he started listing out these prophecies. The first one we came to was the virgin birth of Jesus. It's recorded for us in Matthew chapter 1 verse 23. But Matthew shows that Jesus' birth actually fulfilled prophecy from 700 years earlier. We then move in Isaiah chapter 7 verse 14. We then move to the fact that Matthew shows that Jesus being born in Bethlehem as well was prophesied over around 700 years earlier by the prophet Micah in Micah chapter 5 verse 2. And then we're going to move into some that we see today that, that uh, Jesus would have to escape this maniac Herod the Great by going to Egypt. But Matthew points out to us that that was prophesied around 700 years before by the prophet Hosea. And then we'll come to the fact that Bible teachers refer to as the slaughter of the innocent. That Herod the Great, this madman, was so paranoid that this king of the Jews would usurp his throne. That he ordered the slaughter of the babies, baby boys that had been born in Bethlehem in the area right around it. Two years of age and younger. Bethlehem was a very small place. It's about five miles from Jerusalem. Bible scholars believe that maybe as many as 20 little baby boys were murdered as a result of Herod the Great's action. Matthew looks at that and says that too was foretold by the prophets. 600 years earlier. It's recorded for us in Jeremiah 31 verse 15. And so we're going to look at these truths today as we dig into this account in Matthew chapter 2 verses 13 through 18. We're going to see this unity, this unity of the scriptures and this unity in God's plan of salvation. That God is in complete control over his plan to save his people from their sins. 
And we're going to see that in verse 13, in verse 19, and in verse 22. But before we go there, I want to remind us back about Matthew 1, verse 21. I'm going to read it out loud. Matthew 1, 21. We see here again an angel of the Lord speaking to Joseph. And the angel of the Lord says this. She will bear a son. And you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. From eternity past, God's plan was to be in relationship with the, with people, those he created. And he planned to restore his good creation that he had made. That was tainted by sin. And we find that nothing is going to stop God. We notice that here in verses 13, 19, and 22. And I'll point it out. I'm going to start reading in verse 13. Now when they had gone, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, get up. Take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt. Down in verse 19. But when Herod died, when, but when Herod died, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt and said, get up, take the child and his mother and go into the land of Israel. Down in verse 22. But when he heard that Archelaus was reigning over Judea in place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. Then after being warned by God in a dream, he left for the regions of Galilee. You see, in all three of those verses, we have a record that either the angel of the Lord in a dream or God in a dream warned Joseph. He protected the Christ child. Why? Because God always is in control over his plans. And God is in control of his plan to save his people from their sins. Up in verse 12 of chapter 2, we see God warning the Magi in a dream not to return to Herod. Instead, they left for their own country by another way. We see that same Greek word translated left in the very next verse in verse 13. Now when they left, or my translation says had gone. So the Magi leave. They've been warned too. Don't go back by Herod the Great. And once the Magi leave, it tells us that an angel of the Lord appears to Joseph in a dream saying, flee to Egypt. Herod wants to kill the baby. It would have been about a 75 mile trek from Bethlehem to the border of Egypt. And we see here Joseph doing exactly what he is told. He got up, took the child and his mother while it was still night and left for Egypt. Every one of these times we find God in control. God carrying out his plan. I have several friends that have over the years started their own business. And the common denominator with those guys has been that they've had a business plan. Some of them very elaborate. 
Some of them more simple, but they all had a plan. They all figured out how much capital they would need. They all fought through contingencies like if this goes wrong, then I'll do this. They all had a timeline. Like I need to develop my business at this rate in order to make this thing work. All had a plan. And once they had their plan, they started to work it. Well, God has a plan. A salvation plan. And the benefit of being God and not my buddies is that he doesn't have to have contingencies when things are out of his control. They're always in his control. They're always in his control. And I want to take a few minutes this morning and just briefly hit some very high points, peaks of the fact and of the fact that God have from the very beginning has had a plan to bring restoration to good to his good creation to restore his creation that was good that was tainted by sin so that once again God and humanity could be in close relationship close communion and we see that thread of salvation tie all the way from the beginning of our Bibles clear to the end of our Bibles. Now I'm just going to hit some of the very high peaks this morning. There's the thread is much more defined with more illustrations of the thread than what I'm going to share this morning. But first I want us to go clear back to the book of Genesis chapter 3. And in these Verses in Genesis 3, we find God pronouncing judgment as a result of sin. And in Genesis 3.15, God pronounced judgment against the serpent, which Bible teachers and theologians have understood as really a condemnation against Satan. And in verse 15, we read, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise you on the head. You shall bruise him on the heel. And from early on in church history, theologians have understood this verse as saying that Satan would attempt to bring down Messiah, bruise him on the heel, but Messiah would be the victor, bruising Satan on the head. He will prevail. So clear back in Genesis 3, just a little seedling of the fact that God has a plan to restore his good creation. God has a plan of salvation. We move forward to Genesis 12, verses 1 and 3, which is the first statement of the covenant that God makes with Abraham. And God tells Abram, I want you to leave your father's house. I want you to go to the land where I will show you, and I will bless you. I will bless those who bless you. And in verse 3 of Genesis 12, it says, I will bless those who bless you. The one who curses you, I will curse. And in you... All the families of the earth will be blessed. So we see clear back in Genesis 12. And this is repeated. The covenant repeated in 15, Genesis 17, Genesis 22. That God's plan for salvation was not just for his chosen people Israel. But all the peoples of the earth. 
We come to 2 Samuel chapter 7. We just talked about the covenant God made with Abraham. We also see God making a covenant with David. And we call 2 Samuel 7 starting in verses 7 and following the Davidic covenant. Abrahamic covenant, Genesis 12, 15, 7, 22, 17 and 22. Davidic covenant, 2 Samuel 7. And in 2 Samuel 7, I'll just read a couple of verses. First of all, in verse 13, it says, He shall build a house for my name. I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be a father to him. He will be a son to me. And then down in verse 23, it says this. And what one nation on the earth is like your people, Israel, whom God went to redeem for himself as a people and to make a name for himself and to do a great thing for you and awesome things for your land before your people whom you have redeemed for yourself from Egypt, from nations and their gods. We go from 2 Samuel 7, the statement of the Davidic covenant, to Jeremiah chapter 31. And Jeremiah chapter 31 records what Bible teachers refer to as the new covenant. And I'll start reading in verse 31. It says, Behold, days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Not like the covenant which I made with their fathers in the day I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant which they broke, although I was a husband to them, declares the Lord. But this is the covenant which I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them. And on their heart I will write it. And I will be their God and they shall be my people. They will not teach again each man his neighbor and each man his brother saying know the Lord. For they will all know me. From the least of them to the greatest of them declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity and their sin I will remember no more. So God's plan of salvation is we start clear back in Genesis 3. And start moving through the Old Testament. We find out more information and more information that he chooses a people for himself, Israel. But that nation of Israel will have an heir who will sit on David's throne forever. And that heir is going to be a source of blessing to all the nations of the earth. And we see in Jeremiah 31 that people will be given a new heart And God will be their God and they will be his people. And God will forgive sin. He says they will remember it no more. Well against that backdrop we come to the New Testament. For example we come to Romans chapters 9, 10 and 11. And in those chapters God is talking about how Israel rejected the Messiah. And temporarily God has set them aside and is working with a new entity The church, Jew and Gentile brought together. And the church is grafted into God's plan. He still has a plan for Israel as Paul points out in Romans 9, 10 and 11. But now this church that was a mystery in the Old Testament actually enters into the blessings of those Old Testament covenants. The blessings of the covenant with Abraham and with David and the new covenant and We too can experience forgiveness of sin in our lives through the Messiah, through Jesus, through faith in him. That's why the Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 10 verses 9 and 10 writes this. That if you confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord... 
And believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead. You will be saved. For with the heart a person believes resulting in righteousness. And with the mouth he confesses resulting in salvation. For the scripture says whoever believes in him will not be disappointed. Well that thread of salvation doesn't end in Romans. It goes all the way through the book of Revelation. And as we come to the book of Revelation in chapter 22, we see a glimpse of God's work of redemption complete. He redeems his good creation. And as we come to chapter 22 verses 1 through 5, in this description of the new Jerusalem where we will be living, here's what John writes. Then he showed me a river of the water of life, clear as crystal, coming from the throne of God and of the Lamb in the middle of its street. On either side of the river was the tree of life, bearing twelve kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit every month. And the leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. There will no longer be any curse, and the throne of God and the Lamb will be in it, and his bondservants will serve him. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads. There will no longer be any night, and they will not have need of the light of a lamp nor the light of the sun, because the Lord God will illumine them, and they will reign forever and ever. As we see that picture, we see glimpses back to the description in Genesis Uh, in the first part of Genesis, of the Garden of Eden. You see, God is all about bringing back and restoring his good creation so that once again we will be with him face to face. There'll be no sin blocking us and God. It's his salvation plan and he's working it. And as we drill down back into Matthew 2, as Jesus has to flee to go to Egypt because Herod the Great wants to kill him. And while it doesn't explicitly say it in the text, I think it still comes back clear to the principle we see in Genesis 3 that Satan is all about trying to stop God's plan. He's trying to bruise him. But it'll only be on the heel. And I think Satan is behind Herod the Great trying to stamp out the Christ child. But God always is victorious. He's going to carry out his plan of salvation. It's going to come to fruition. He's going to redeem and restore his good creation. So that's one of the major themes in these verses. The second one... Is that these verses are intended to bolster our faith. They're intended to encourage us that Jesus is the Messiah. That he is this long awaited anointed king. That there is a unity in the scriptures. There's a unity in God's plan of salvation. And we base our faith on concrete Truths. Truths that date sometimes 600, 700 or more years before as a prophet looked forward and prophesied details 
of Jesus' birth. And as we look at these, remember that this is just a tiny glimpse into hundreds of prophecies that we find fulfillment to in the Old Testament. Sometimes fulfilled in the Old Testament from an Old Testament prophecy. Sometimes an Old Testament prophecy fulfilled in the New. And we're going to look at another one in a few minutes. So here in verses 14 through 18, 20 and 21 and 23, we see that Jesus' escape to Egypt shows the unity of the Bible and God's overall plan of salvation. First, let's go back to verse 14. Angel of the Lord tells Joseph, you've got to flee. You need to go to Egypt. You need to take your wife and your little baby with you because Herod the Great wants to kill him. We see in verse 14, so Joseph got up and took the child and his mother while it was still night and left for Egypt. Remember about a 75 mile trek. He remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what had been spoken by the Lord through the prophet out of Egypt, I called my son. Now that's a quote from Hosea chapter 11 verse 1. Hosea would have written about 700 years before Jesus' birth. Remember when we talk about prophecy, that there's often a near partial fulfillment to a prophecy, but then a fuller fulfillment, a more complete fulfillment down the road. Sometimes in the near future, sometimes in the distant future. And we find that in these prophecies that Matthew recognizes here. In Hosea's day, when he said, out of Egypt, I called my son, Hosea is referring in the near term to Israel's exodus out of Egypt. Remember, Israel was in bondage to Egypt. God called them out, brought in Moses, and led the people out of the exodus. Or out of Egypt via the Exodus. And so Hosea referring back to that. Exodus says out of Egypt I called my son. In the near future son was referring to Israel. But Hosea surely was also aware of what Samuel wrote in 2 Samuel 7. When it said that this anointed king that's going to reign forever and ever over the kingdom would be a son of God. There's very good probability that as Hosea wrote, out of Egypt I called my son, knowing that he was referring to the Exodus, also cognizant of the fact that what he was talking about could be picturing Messiah, the Son of God, being called out of Egypt. And Matthew, under the inspiration, under the undergirding of the Spirit of God, clearly recognizes that Jesus fleeing to Egypt is a fulfillment to what Hosea wrote in chapter 11, verse 1. We move on. To verses 16 and following. Verse 16 records the heinous act of Herod the Great. Of slaying these two year old little boys and under. And it says 
In verse 16, Herod saw that he'd been tricked by the Magi. He became very enraged and sent and slew all the male children who were in Bethlehem and all its vicinity from two years old and under, according to the time which he had determined from the Magi. Then what had been spoken through Jeremiah the prophet was fulfilled. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping in great mourning, Rachel weeping to her children, and she refused to be comforted because they were no more. Now remember, there's a near fulfillment to this, but then a a more full fulfillment down the road. In the near term, here, we have a quote from Jeremiah chapter 31, verse 15. Most likely what Jeremiah referred to was the fact that Judah was going to be taken captive by the Babylonians in 586 BC. Thus, when it says Rachel was weeping for her children, it's picturing Rachel as the mother of Israel. Even, even though her sister Leah gave birth to more of the sons that led up tribes of Israel, Rachel considered here as the mother of Israel. Here we have a mother weeping for her children, Israel. However, Matthew, under the empowerment of the Spirit of God, sees this verse come to its ultimate fulfillment in the tears of the mothers of Bethlehem. Because those tears are going are tears that signal the end of tears. It's the end of Israel's weeping because this baby is the Messiah. This baby is the answer to the Davidic covenant and the new covenant that Jeremiah talks about in just a few verses after the quoted verse in verse 15. That this Christ child will bring the end of Israel's And Matthew, undergirded by the Spirit of God, sees this slaughter of these innocent babies as a complete fulfillment of Jeremiah's prophecy in 31 verse 15. Well, Herod dies. And again, an angel of the Lord in verse 19 Appears to Joseph in a dream and says, go back to Israel. But as Joseph comes to Israel, he's caught up in fear because he hears that Archelaus is now the governor of Judea. If you look at verse 22, but when he heard Archelaus was reigning over Judea in place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. Now Archelaus is the son of Herod the Great. Herod the Great is a lunatic. Remember, he murdered his favorite wife and two of his sons because he was so paranoid that his sons may usurp his, take his throne. Well, from writings outside of the scripture, Archelaus was as crazy as his father. He's a lunatic too. And Joseph is correct in being fearful of him. So we find that God in a dream in verse 22 warns Joseph instead to go to the regions of Galilee. 
And verse 23 says they came and lived in a city called Nazareth. Nazareth in the area of Galilee is also being led or ruled by one of Herod the Great's sons. Herod Antipas, and we'll run into him again in Matthew chapter 14, verses 1 through 10. But Herod Antipas, at the time, is considered not as crazy as Archelaus was. And so we find Joseph and Mary and baby Jesus going to Nazareth. We know from Luke chapter 1, verses 26 and 27, and Luke chapter 2, verse 39, that Nazareth is actually Joseph and Mary's hometown. So they're going back to Nazareth. Now it's interesting, in verse 23, here's what Matthew's conclusion is. This was to fulfill what was spoken through the prophets. Note that's, note that's plural. He shall be called the Nazarene. Now in most of your Bible translations, you'll see that all of these previous Old Testament references are in all caps. All capital letters. That means that there's a specific verse in the Old Testament that's being quoted. But when you come to this record in verse 23, it's not all caps. Remember it says, this is fulfilling the prophets. So what Matthew is saying here is that there's not a specific verse to which he refers in the Old Testament. But he's referring to the overall teaching of the prophets. And one of the things that the prophets taught was that the Messiah would be an object of disdain. That the Messiah would be despised. Now what's that have to do with Nazareth? If you were from Nazareth in Jesus' day, everybody would stick up their nose around you. Because people from Nazareth were considered second rate. I grew up in Council Bluffs, Iowa. I know what that's like. Because all my life, I had to hear about what a pit of a town I, uh, Council Bluffs is. People used to tell me that Council Bluffs is the armpit of Iowa. I had one person try to convince me that Council Bluffs wasn't even really part of Iowa. I know what it's like. To be from Nazareth. Because my whole growing up years. All I had to hear about is. Man what a dump of a town you're from. Well that's what the Jews. Thought about Nazareth. There was a huge Roman garrison there. And people thought. If you chose to live in Nazareth. As a Jew. You are complicit with the Romans. And we hate the Romans. So just to be from Nazareth. Was a thing of scorn. In fact, if you go to Acts chapter 24 verse 5, you'll see that early Christians were referred to as the sect of the Nazarenes. That was not a nice thing to be called. That'd be like, you're the sect of Council Bluffs. They'd say it with disdain. These stupid Christians, they're, they're, they're Nazarenes. The point of all of this is that as Matthew looks back and see that Jesus is going to be considered a Nazarene, he's going to be considered one who is scorned, one who is despised. And in the Old Testament, we see that this promised anointed king, this Messiah, 
would be despised and scorned. I'm going to read Psalm 69 verses 8 and 21. And in Psalm 69 verse 8 we read, I've become estranged from my brothers and an alien to my mother's sons. But then down in verses 20 and 21, listen to these words. Reproach has broken my heart. And I am so sick. I looked for sympathy, but there was none. And for comforters, but I found none. They also gave me gale for my food. And for my thirst, they gave me vinegar to drink. Isn't that interesting? Remember what Jesus was given to drink on the cross. So the Old Testament prophets viewed the Messiah as one who is disdained. To be from Nazareth or a Nazarene is one to be disdained. And so Matthew sees Jesus from Nazareth as a fulfillment of the Old Testament prophets. Bible teachers also believe that there's a chance that Isaiah 11.1 may come into play here. Because Isaiah 11.1 says that Messiah would be a branch off the stump of Israel. And the word for branch there is the word nezer, like nezarene. It'd be like if you cut down a tree at your place in your yard or in your property and don't have a stump grinder come in and take that stump out, what happens? Sometimes you'll get a little offshoot off that stump. And that's what Isaiah 11, 1 says that Messiah will be. And so Matthew, under the inspiration of the Spirit of God, sees in Jesus having to flee Israel to go to Egypt, sees that in this slaughter of these innocent babies, and sees that in Jesus going back, but not back to Bethlehem, to Nazareth, are all fulfillments of Old Testament prophets, that Jesus' escape to Egypt shows the unity of the Bible and the unity of God's plan of salvation. When I was in grade school, I chose to play an instrument. And I chose the alto sax. And I played the saxophone from about fifth grade all the way through junior high, through senior high, and a little bit into college. And I was in concert band, marching band, which I hated with great disdain, and jazz band. Most of the time it was enjoyable. But if you've ever been in an orchestra or a concert band... Sometimes it's just plain boring, especially when you had sections who had not adequately prepared and your director wants to just listen to the tubas. And you're sitting there thinking, why do we even need tubas? I mean, those guys have the most boring part. Boom, 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 boom. Just that, oh boy, we get to hear the tubas. Let's hear it for the tubas. Oh man, I had a tuba player first hour that I offended, but... Or those trombones. Tuba player, tuba player. Okay, sometimes you get a little bit of a part, but not much. And then those trombones. We're always in front of those trombones, and they take that slide, and they'd empty out their spit valve right underneath the sax player's chairs. Hated those guys. Oh, why do we have these different parts? But then, when you finally, when they learn their parts, and they finally all come together... You'd say, if we didn't have the tubas and the trombones, there'd be something missing, wouldn't there? It all 
fits together in this beautiful orchestrated plan. And Matthew, when he drills down here in verses 13 through 23, is giving us just a little glimpse of the fact that this is a highly orchestrated plan. That when this baby came to earth, born of a virgin, it fit into God's eternal plan to restore his good creation, to bring salvation to humanity so that we once again would be able to enjoy being in right relationship with God. If you're here today and you don't know if you're in right relationship with God or not, we have some material we'd like to provide to you. One of our leaders here at Faith Bible Church, one of our elders, will be back in the prayer room right behind you. And you can just go back there. We have some material we'd love to put in your hand. You can just ask for that. Maybe you want to give it to a friend or something too. That's great. And you can just take out your own Bible, look up in the first section of that book how you can know for sure that you can be right with God. Or maybe you want to spend some time in prayer this morning before you leave. Please avail yourself of the prayer room. Father, we thank you that Jesus' escape to Egypt fulfills scripture. It demonstrates your overall plan and that you are master over it. It gives us hope that your plan of salvation is sure. We praise you. And pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.